I want to teach you a little bit tonight um, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I, I think it'll feel that way. It's, it's, it's meant to feel that way. I, I don't know if, if we'll go beyond that. I, I just want to walk through a little bit of what it means to be a deacon. Um, we're installing a new deacon tonight, and I, I, don't want to, I don't want to treat that as a light thing, because it's not. It's not a light thing at all. It's, it's, it's been a matter of prayer for me for over a year now. And it's very, very important to me. Um, and honestly, um, it really should be important to the church as well. Because it is a biblical office. And uh, I, I just, I want to talk a little bit about what deacon is and how we select a deacon based on the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacon, that term is, <clears throat> is, is commonly used in the New Testament, generally and specifically. It's used generally in the New Testament to, to describe service or ministry. For instance, it's, it's used to describe Martha in Luke chapter 10 when she served Jesus a meal. Mark chapter 2, that term deacon, is used to describe the, the service or ministry of Peter's mother-in-law who served the disciples and Jesus in her home. It's used to describe the, the ministry of the seven men in Acts 6 that were chosen by the church to serve the widows. Now their ministry was not that of the official office of a deacon, I don't believe, but, but, but perhaps foreshadowed the office of a deacon. So we don't have to take our cues from, from the process of Acts chapter 6 about, about who is a deacon and how we select them and how we go about them. If, at best, they were foreshadowing the office of a deacon. It's used to describe the ministry of soldiers and law enforcement in Romans 13. Those men are deacons. Generally speaking, they serve their citizens. They minister on behalf of their country or their community. It's used to describe the service of church members in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, as they use their God-given abilities to serve their fellow man inside of the church. But the term is used specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to describe the actual office of a deacon. This is the only passage in all of Scripture that speaks clearly to the deacon as an officer in the church. This, this is the passage that causes us to believe, at least as Baptists, that there are two official offices in the church. There's the pastor and the deacon. The pastor is interchangeable with terms like the elder or the bishop. No specifics are given in Scripture as to the duties of the deacons. We know that by the name of the office being that of a deacon and what it means, they are to be servant-minded men. They are to have a heart to serve and, and support the church leadership and the congregation. In fact, I would go so far as to say they should be model servants of God. But how deacons serve practically is up to each church and pastor to decide. The way our deacons currently serve is, is by way of praying for the people, counseling the pastor, and preserving the unity of our church. That's how I right now use our deacons. I meet with our deacons every Sunday morning to pray over the needs of our church. We pray for the sick in our church. We pray for the lost in our church. We pray for the wayward in our church. We, we pray over a list of names of prospective members in our church. We pray for various ministries that will be happening that day in our church. In that meeting, I often run things by the deacons to get their counsel. To get their feedback, I, I really, really need that on a regular basis. In this meeting is also where they inform me of any problems or 
situations they know of that need to be addressed within the church. And so they pray, they counsel, and they work with me to preserve the unity of the church. The epistles, though, are not just silent on the specific duties of a deacon, but also silent on on the matter of how a church selects deacons, thus leaving it up to each individual church to decide. So instead of giving us those logistical specifics, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a list of requirements that deacons and their wives need to meet in order to fill the office. And that's what we use to guide our selection process. The way we've always done it here at our church is the pastor and current deacons nominate, select, and install new deacons. They use the list of requirements that we're going to study tonight to guide them. Our church has not historically had term limits for our deacons like we do our trustees. So so long as the deacons are staying biblically qualified, so long as the deacons themselves choose to stay in that office, they will. And considering the the deacons are really my chief counselors in the ministry alongside of my pastoral staff, I prefer to leave it that way so that we can build a a life, not not, it could be a lifetime, but but really a long-term trust and chemistry with each other instead of different men rolling on and off every two years as some churches do it. We do that with the trustees because it's more of a logistical role, administrative role. The deacons are, are, are used here in fellowship in a more of a spiritual role and, and know a lot of intimate things about our church. And, and I like to, to keep that with, with us. Considering our selection process then is based on this list, I want to walk through that with you. And we're just going to walk through each one. I'm going to tell you what it means because we're going to install a new deacon. And I want you to know what we used to uh, to, to select Brother Farron, not just the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit in this, the, the Word of God was really our map for this. Several qualifications. Number one, look at chapter 3, verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave. Grave. Deacons must be grave. The word grave doesn't mean they must be dead. <laughs> they must be serious. One definition is they must be stately. It actually comes from a root word that means to worship. I think Paul's getting at this idea that those that are characterized by graveness or this stately dignity or this seriousness of mind have a quality of character that people sometimes can even stand in awe of. The idea is that a deacon shouldn't be a flippant, immature person who makes light of serious matters. A deacon can, of course, have fun and love life, but they should know when to be serious and how to be serious. I think Paul's speaking to a depth of character here, not a shallowness of character. He's speaking, watch here, to a man of God. Not not just a passive observer in a church, but a man of God, a spiritual man. Number two, it says, deacons must not be double-tongued. This this means to not be hypocritical with their words, to say one thing to one person, but say something else to another person. Listen, a deacon's speech should be characterized by consistency and integrity and honesty. And the reason this is so important to a deacon's character is because they're going to deal with with people and they're going to deal with serious and private and sensitive matters. And they're expected to exhibit self-control over their words. If they don't, they'll hurt people. They'll cease to be blameless. Number three, it says deacons must not be given to much wine. This is probably the most controversial qualification. 
in regards to how it's interpreted and applied to the local church. I was talking to the pastoral staff about this qualification earlier. And they said, well, pastor, what you should just say is, is well, that's just the qualification. And we're going to talk about it later in a message. <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that I know when an elephant's in the room and I want to speak to it. Not given to much wine. Here's what we have to establish first as we're interpreting Paul's statement. He did say what he said. And he didn't make a mistake. The deacon is not to be given to much wine. Now the controversy comes in because Paul said much wine. Which seems to imply it's okay for the deacon to partake of some wine. Let's study for just a moment. The key term to understand here is the Greek word translated as given in this verse. The Greek word is doulo. The same word is used in Acts 7, verse 6. It's translated bondage. It's used in 2 Peter 2, verse 19. And, and, and Peter uses it to describe bond servants of corruption. So the idea behind this word given is it seems to, to, to give the idea of being bound to something, being a slave to something. In the context of alcohol, we would say it this way, don't be addicted to wine. Paul is saying that, that deacons shouldn't give themselves to wine in such a way that they could be enslaved by it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Paul is condoning the moderate drinking of wine as we know it today. Because when it comes to wine in the Bible days, there's a couple things we really need to figure in here. It was commonly used in Paul's day for safety or sanitary and medicinal purposes. Okay? For, for instance, they, they would use wine to kill the bacteria in their water because back then it wasn't sanitary or safe to drink water um, just straight from the tap like it is today. Say so they'd use wine to, to, to kill that bacteria. They would also use wine as a form of medicine, which is why Paul told Timothy that he could drink a little wine for the stomach's sake. They didn't have over-the-counter remedies like we do today. Are you with me? But it's also true, and, and, and conservative Baptists have a... Have a hard time admitting this, but you just got to do an honest study of history. Wine was a very common drink in this day. It really was. It was as common as drinking iced tea is for us or soda or whatever you drink every day. That's non-alcoholic, but the difference between the wine that they drank and the wine and alcoholic beverages today, the difference is the amount of alcoholic content contained in it. Normally, they would, they would pick the grapes, they would store the grapes for a few days, and, and, and that would then allow the alcoholic content to decrease to 2 to 4%. Then they would take it and boil it in water, virtually taking out all the alcoholic content. At that point, it would turn into kind of like a paste-like substance that they would remix with water to provide their very common drinking beverage. This would have been the beverage that Jesus drank. When he went to Levi's house, the publican sinners, and he ate and drank, he didn't use wine to clean out their scratches. Hello? He didn't drink Kool-Aid. This was a very common beverage. So, so a very, very a biasly, a, a person who's biased against moderate drinking might go to an extreme here and, 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 and say something like, there's never any moderate drinking in the Bible. Well, there was because people drank wine all the time. A person who's liberal or progressive might look at this and say, yes, I get a drink. 
We can't go to either extreme. Because while it's true that moderate drinking of wine was common in the Bible, it's also true that wine, for the most part, was very different than ours today. It wasn't apples to apples. Paul's concern here was not that the, that, that, was that the deacons were careful to not abuse the use of this wine. Okay? You had to drink a ton of it to be intoxicated, but it was still impossible to drink too much and eventually be addicted to it, which would have hurt their testimony, both in their church and in their community, which would then disqualify them to be a deacon. Now, there are some really good, and I challenge you, like, like the Church of Berea, I challenge you to go study the scriptures for yourself. There are some really good and respected men, Bible-believing, God-fearing men on both sides of the moderate drinking argument. But here's where I stand as far as I can tell. The Bible doesn't straight up forbid, as clearly at least, the use of alcohol in moderation like it clearly forbids drunkenness. But I do believe, based on how clear the Bible is about the dangers of alcohol... And based on how much easier it is to be intoxicated with our modern alcoholic drink as compared to back in this day. That the wisest thing for Christians to do and definitely for deacons and pastors to do is to totally abstain. So at the very least, I would say this church, it's a matter of wisdom to stay as far away from alcohol as you possibly can. I don't have to go into proving what alcohol does in our society. You get that. As your pastor, I'm urging you as I do the deacons of this church to make the wisest choice you can when it comes to alcoholic beverages. Give yourself as a Christian the best chance to have a blameless testimony at church, at work, with your family, and in this community. Give yourself the best chance to make spirit-filled, sober-minded, Christ-like decisions. Doesn't 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter chapter 4 command the Christian to be sober because the devil is attacking us every day? I believe the best way to stay sober-minded is to first stay sober in the first place. For our pastoral staff, deacons, trustees... And anybody who teaches the word of God here, the standard that is agreed upon and expected is total abstinence from alcohol. And I do not apologize for that. That's the wisest decision that we could possibly make. Here's the next qualification. Deacons must not be greedy of filthy lucre. Paul was talking about the temptation to use the office of a deacon like some pastors have used their office to make money. Doesn't mean that, that pastors, by the way, ought to be poor men. Uh, in, in this day, um, pastors and deacons were likely used heavily in the area of financial oversight and, and handling of offerings. So it would have been a temptation for them to steal. So generally speaking, I, I, I believe Paul's saying that deacons ought to be the opposite of greedy. They ought to be examples of generous giving. If deacons are to be a model servant um, leader in the church and they should live their life toward others with their hands open, not their hands closed. Thus tithing and giving an offering, giving their talent, giving their time is a requirement of every deacon. Deacons next must hold the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Paul's basically saying that a qualified deacon is one who holds to all scripture with a pure conscience, meaning he lives his life in such a way, according to the Bible, that his conscience doesn't accuse him. He lives a morally pure life. And watch here, not just for a little while, 
But he's proven that this is his regular manner of living. That's that's the sixth requirement. Deacons must first be proved. It's important when choosing deacons that that we choose men that that have proven to live a morally pure pure life. There's a key word in, in that qualification. It's the word then. After they have been found morally pure and blameless, Paul says, then they can serve as a deacon. And I think this is also a good reminder for those currently serving as deacons. We have good spiritual men. But the qualification of moral purity and obedience to Scripture doesn't cease once you become a deacon. This is an ongoing expectation of any deacon and pastoral staff member, no, longer, no matter how long they've served. Here's the next one. If deacons are married, they must have wives who are qualified. I do not believe deacons have to be married. Do not believe that. I believe that a single man can serve as a deacon. Paul himself was a single man and served as a church planning missionary and a pastor. So he certainly could not be commanding Timothy to examine potential pastors or deacons on the basis of what he himself was not qualified to undertake. But if they are married, the character of their wife is of utmost importance. That's why I tell our young men, be careful who you marry. For instance, the wife must be grave, the Bible says there in in verse number uh, 11. Be grave, serious-minded, stately, dignified, modest, not a slander, not a gossip, controlled speech, not a murmurer, not a complainer. She should promote the unity as her husband does. Wife of a deacon ought to be sober, temperate, self-controlled, emotionally stable, Also sober and referring to her abstaining from alcohol. She ought to be faithful. The deacon's wife is expected to be as faithful to scripture and to the church as her husband is. When we prayerfully consider a man for the office of a deacon, we consider his wife as well. And we expect his wife to be as biblically qualified as he is. Next, if deacons are married, they must be the husband of one wife. The literal Greek translation reads this way, a one woman Man, this is the second most controversial qualification in the list. Can a deacon be divorced and still be a deacon? Well, there are many, many good Baptist churches that believe they can. There are two viable interpretations of this phrase, a one woman man. The first would say that it's not dealing with one's past marital status, but but instead one's present marital status, since all the qualifications of, of a deacon are in the present tense. The argument says that if a man is faithful to his current spouse, then he's qualified to serve as a deacon. The other interpretation says that since verse 10 of our text calls on the deacon to be blameless or above reproach, there's no way a deacon can be divorced in his past and still be considered blameless by a church, even if he's faithful to his present spouse. The deacons and myself studied this out together, and I'll tell you where we landed. We felt most comfortable with keeping the qualification of a deacon where it's always been in this church, and that is divorced men cannot serve as deacons. I want to be clear about something. This does not mean that a divorced man cannot serve. It does mean that a divorced man cannot be a man of high character and used in a big and even public way in the church. We have a number of good men who have been divorced but are serving faithfully in our church today, several of them are, the, are part of the backbone of our church. However, we felt it best to keep the standard high when it comes to qualifying for a biblical office so as not to minimize the lifetime commitment that God expects in a marriage. Here's the next one. Deacons must rule their children in their house as well. This is speaking to how a deacon leads his home. 
Deacon should not be more passionate about leading in church than he is about leading in his house. A deacon should not be the hero at church, but a villain at home. A deacon should be excelling in his parent, parenting and excelling in his marriage before he is ever entrusted with the position of leadership inside of the church. I want to make something very clear. This doesn't mean that a deacon's kids have to be perfect. See, Farron and Emily got your eyes on, on you. Right? I've watched how they've parented. I'm so impressed by the way they raised their kids. I have a hard time keeping one in line. I, I love their dedication and commitment to godly, grace-filled, gospel-centered parenting. But, but, but listen, when we look at a deacon's kids, they're kids. Just like anybody else's kids. Here's what this qualifications mean. It means a deacon is doing everything he can to give his, his kids the best chance to love God. If a deacon is, is fulfilling the office of a deacon, but, but he, he is totally hands off as a father, he has disqualified himself. So there's the list of qualifications. As you can see, the office of a deacon is no joke. It's no light thing at all. It's a sacred office. The man and his wife, should he be married, are expected to be very serious and spiritually minded individuals, I believe, when it comes to their character and to the work of the Lord. And so I just I wanted to run through those with you and let you know where I stand as a pastor. On some of those, I, I want to be fair to Scripture, even on the controversial ones. I want to be fair to Scripture. We can come to different conclusions if we want. You don't have to believe the way I believe on deacon qualifications to go to heaven, so we don't need to separate over it. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the requirements are high. And we're going to keep them there. And should something happen to me, and you need to hire a new pastor, you need to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you need to make sure, deacons, that the next guy you hire after me, should I pass away? I'm, I'm flying to Fort Worth tomorrow. Should the plane explode or something like that? Then take good care of my wife, good care of my son. But when you hire the next pastor, you, you keep the standards super high. A man of character is so very, very important. And you don't get to judge what that is. It's already been laid out for.